for today, and then we're going to jump into our brand new series. Good morning, city. Our reading today is going to come from selected verses from the book of Malachi. I am, however, going to read these verses as one, starting from Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Herbert. Even throwing in, uh, this is the word of the Lord, I feel like I was going back to my Methodist uh, school days where everyone had to say this is the word of the Lord and then praise be to God was the response. Do you, like anyone, any Methodist want to wanna give us a shout out? Hey, I'm so glad that you have joined us, uh, and it, I'm so excited that we get to start this series. As you would have heard from Herbert's reading, um, that he absolutely smashed. This is why we have to sometimes, uh, you know, outsource these types of things, because I couldn't read that good. And so I'm excited to kick off uh, our new series in the book of Malachi. It's called Crushing Apathy. It's going to get hectic, quick, 
but I'm so excited because God's going to speak through it. I want to welcome you. If we haven't met, my name is Duncan. Uh, I have the privilege of being on the leadership team here. And as we jump into the series, uh, I have two jobs today. Um, I have uh, the, the privilege of kicking off the Malachi series, but at the same time, uh, I'll be kicking us off in our Minor Prophets series throughout the year. And so there's, there's two jobs here. I want to try and orientate all of us in the midst of the Minor Prophets, but at the same time, I really want to kick you in and take a, di- a deep dive into the book of Malachi and see what God has to say to us today. And so that's the plan. As I said, we're jumping into a minor prophet series throughout this year. If you've been uh, with us for a while, or maybe you haven't, I want to let you know, our preaching schedule, we often will balance it between two big things. Basically, half the year, we will focus in on topical series, series where we believe, hey, this is something that God is speaking to us. And then about half the year, we will have a main focus. And in years gone by, that's often taken uh, the form of going through a single book. Last year, we went through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Chronologically, every verse, we smashed it in about six months through the year. And so this year, we're taking a slightly different approach, but still with the main focus being not just one book, but actually a series, a whole section, a whole genre within Scripture, and that's the Minor Prophets. And it's a massively, I think, neglected chunk of the Old Testament, but it is huge, and it's dripping with the truth of God, because he actually comes with strong rebukes, strong corrections, strong judgments, but at the same time, it, it paints a picture and gives us a canvas onto which he will actually paint the gospel in the coming of Jesus. And so it's so important to understand where we're going. And so I want to give you a quick synopsis of the Minor Prophets, just so that we're all orientated as to where we are. The minor prophets, there's 12 of them, and they're called the minor prophets in contrast to the major prophets, not because of their importance or lack thereof, but actually just due to their size. These are the 12 kind of shorter prophetic books within the Old Testament, and within the Old Testament, you will have your major prophets where you're getting 40, 50 uh, chapters, books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, but then you have the 12 minor prophets, and as they jump in, uh, you're seeing books that maybe only have one, two, four, even with a max of around about 12 chapters. And so we're going to be going this year through all 12. And that's our aim. And so Malachi is where we're starting. We'll be for uh, about three weeks. We'll be in the book of Malachi. And I I really do believe God is going to speak to us. Um, I've had, uh, the preaching team will know this. I've had an idea to do a minor prophet series for probably about two years. And the name I had thrown around was the name Syncopate. Because if you don't know, I'll let you know. Uh, in music, there is a, a concept called syncopation, where basically you take a very well-known melody, and where things are normally ac- accented, you de-accent them, and where things are normally quite low in the, in the emphasis, you actually now will place emphasis on it. And what it does is begin to change rhythm and change vibe and change flow, and so you actually got, get from the very same piece of music a very different Um, experience. And I really believe that as we take a look at what I believe is a a neglected chunk of Scripture, something that maybe hasn't been as emphasized, as we look into it and give it its focus, I think God's going to do much. This is our plan for the day. Uh, I've given this message the title, The Refining Fire. You would have heard that come through as Herbert got to the beginning of chapter 3. This concept of the refiner's fire, like fuller's soap, gets introduced And it's going to be amazing. I'm going to look at this message under three big headings. The first one is Malachi's framework. Then we're going to look at at Israel's faithlessness. And lastly, we're going to take a look at God's faithfulness. First one, Malachi's framework. 
as I've kind of given you this synopsis of the minor prophets, I want to explain basically where we are in terms of the timeline, give you a bit of context in terms, maybe the historical context of the Old Testament is not something you know well. Um, the team's going to put up a graphic uh, that I think is so helpful in just placing all 12 minor prophets and where they find uh, their feet within the history of the nation of Israel. I'll go to a place where I think we all can kind of find some sort of common knowledge. Uh, maybe you know King David, right? David and Goliath. Can we all start there? About a thousand years before Jesus, he is king of Israel, great king, honored throughout history. He has a son named Solomon. Solomon probably was the last great king of the nation of Israel because post him, it all goes kind of pear-shaped. And, it, and Solomon builds the great temple. He was one of the richest men to ever live in history. He was known as the wisest man to ever live in history. And when he dies, everything goes downhill. Post Solomon, what actually happens is the nation of Israel divides into two kingdoms. And it divides between, because there is a, almost a mutiny against his son, his son is Rehoboam, who's in the southern kingdom, takes two tribes out of the 12 tribes of Israel and makes the southern kingdom the kingdom of Judah. To the north, you have Jeroboam, who actually was one of his leaders and advisors. And he takes the other 10 tribes and the kingdom of Israel is found in the north. And so the divided kingdom goes down a road and it's a rocky road. Because from that moment, what, what you find is both Judah and Israel going down a road of sin, a road of idolatry. They forsake God. They forsake His ways. They forsake His commands. And eventually for both of them, those actions have their consequence. The chickens come home to roost and both actually are uh, defeated, overtaken by big empires and, and taken into exile. For the north, it happened for the first time and it happened in 722 B.C., that's going way back. 722 BC, they're actually overtaken by the Assyrian Empire, the world major power at that time. And as they are taken, they are taken into exile and the northern kingdom is no more. It never returns. The southern kingdom hangs on a bit longer. In 586, they get overtaken by the Babylonian Empire. And as Babylon took them over and took their people away and lay the city of Jerusalem in ruins, they actually spend almost an entire generation in exile, in complete shame. And throughout this period, what you have is the minor prophets and God speaking through his prophets, his mouthpieces, warning the people, calling them to repent, saying, hey, you're going down this road, it's not going to go well, but they don't turn back. He says, hey, you're not actually following me and, what I, and my word, come back. They don't. Again and again and again. And all the way up until the exile hits, there's nine minor prophets along the way who give this message and the people don't listen. And then you have a return. A generation passes in exile and in the southern kingdom of Judah, there's a return back to Jerusalem. God actually miraculously makes that possible through Ezra and Nehemiah as they come back to start to rebuild the city walls, start to rebuild the temple. And it's in that post-exilic period that you find our final three minor prophets. And at the very end, number 12, the last one, you have the book of Malachi. And I think it's so awesome that we are starting with the last minor prophet. Because this is why Malachi is important. Malachi is actually the final word in the Old Testament. What you have after it is known as the 400 silent years. 400 years where God did not speak because he had said all he needed to say and what came next was the coming of Jesus. And so it's so important that final words matter. 
And so as we dive into this book, the final words of God to the nation of Israel before the coming of Jesus, he's gonna do some amazing things in speaking to us. Malachi 1.1 starts by saying, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's obviously written and authored by a guy called Malachi. And the truth is we don't actually know anything else about the guy. All we know is his name and that he was the author. He was the one bringing the message. And when you look at what his name actually means, it means my messenger. And I think that's so important and something we shouldn't miss. That actually Malachi, even in his name, and this so often was the process and the concept that God would, uh, would work with in his prophets, is giving them a name that wasn't just simply something to name them, but it actually spoke to their function and their purpose. And when you look at the message of the book of Malachi, the name my messenger just applies so greatly. Because the focus of the book is actually God's message. It just happened to come through a guy called Malachi. But the focus was God. The focus was his word to his people because he knew what would come 400 years later. He knew that these words were gonna be important. And so Malachi comes and brings God's message. And I, I think it's so important to even me, my, me, myself, being a preacher, realizing that we actually are called to be messengers and that actually the one who gives the message is the focus. And so even it was a challenge to me uh, getting this ready and preaching today, saying, you know, am I getting out of the way? Am I allowing the message of God to be the focus and not myself? Am I allowing his word to be the word that comes out and not my own? Actually, this morning on the way here in the car, my wife Nikita prayed for me. And uh, she prayed uh, these words. And uh, she had said, Lord, I just really pray that Duncan's message and Duncan's words. And she stopped herself and then corrected herself and said, Lord, I really do just pray that your words and your message as they come through Duncan would hit hearts where they need to. And that's actually the story of Malachi. Because oracle, I know you, you probably heard that word oracle in the first verse. Um, oracle actually means one who has a burden. That the burden of Malachi is actually a heart issue. It's a, it's a burden that God is wanting to let his people in on. And so even as we dive in deeper into this message, I want you to know that we are dealing in God's word that we're dealing in his Bible. It's why it's unlike any other book, because it's not just a word about God, it's actually a word from God. And he's speaking to you and me. And as we dive into the conversation, because this is what God's doing with his people in, in Malachi, he's actually calling a family meeting. If his heart is so burdened and he has this father heart for his children, the children of Israel, and that's the same heart he has for you and me, that's the same message he has for you and me, I want you to almost take a moment to think about this context as being a family meeting. I don't know how it works for you and your families, but uh, when we have a serious moment or a serious conversation has to happen, it has to go out onto the patio. And so anyone in our family will know, if you get called out to the patio, it is serious. It's the real deal. And so it's a family meeting moment. And God is calling a family meeting. We know this quite well in COVID because um, Uncle Cyril calls family meetings. It just happens to be nationwide and it changes everything for us. But I want you to imagine in that moment where, it, where that family meeting happens for you. If it's in a living room, if it's around a dinner table, imagine that because that's the, the context God is wanting to speak in as he shares his heart. It takes us into... First, the first one being Israel's faith, faithlessness, our second heading. 
first failure I think that they were in, in the midst of this, and God is trying to address and correct, is there was a failure in perception and reality. But I don't want to, I want to take a step back before we get into that. I want you to notice God's approach. I don't want you to just let it go by the wayside, that actually God in this final uh, family meeting before the coming of Jesus, so it's a big deal, he chooses to have his first words be, I have loved you. God's approach is not one of anger, it's actually one of love. And if you look at Israel's actions at this time, what they had been doing, God actually had a lot to be angry about, rightly so. And yet he still chooses to say, I have loved you. He starts his message there. He actually will point out even their own objections and accusations against them. Even though they're false, he starts there and says, hey, actually, I'm going to meet you here. And I think this is something that's so comforting to us, that God can actually handle us in our hurt, in our anger, in our frustration, even when it's directed towards him. If you have a moment where you're angry at God, I want you to know it's not something that should shy you away from God. It's a moment where you actually should approach God with that anger because he can deal with it. God can handle our hurt because Israel in this moment was dealing with a lot of hurt. If you had to look at them economically, they were laying in ruins. Their economy was nowhere. Their city was lying in ruins. They literally had nothing. Politically, they were the small nation, even though they were allowed to return, they were politically a small nation that was being basically bullied by the powers around them. Spiritually, they were not in a good place because we know the reality was they were in idol worship, they were in false worship, and they were even in false teaching. So much of Malachi 1 and 2 actually goes after the priests of the people, those who actually were in charge of their spiritual worship and instruction. And God actually points the finger and says, do you realize spiritually what you're doing to my people? They had a lot to hurt about. The accusation they had was God is not, has not loved us. And even though it wasn't true, God meets them in their hurt and pain because he's a father first. And he enters that conversation. And I think there's such a big principle that God models even in this moment. And I don't care if you're a parent, if you're a friend, if you deal with loved ones, this is actually the principle in how we should deal with these situations. That actually we have to connect before we correct. He chooses to connect with his people. He chooses to say, I have loved you. And he'll even point back and remind them, hey, this is where we've come from. This is where I have loved you. This is how I have loved you. This is actually who I am, and this is how we deal. He actually, in building this connection, realizes and even uh, acknowledges their objections. He acknowledges their accusations. That actually for them, the belief that had grown within them, the perception that had grown within them was God has not loved us. God has actually failed us. He's not actually who he says he is. And actually, you know what? Maybe we are, have been wronged in this area. He acknowledges that. And then he reminds them who he is in his correction. And he brings up a bit of their history because he wants to remind them that he is their father, that he is the one who chose them, that he is the one who loved them, that he is the one who blesses them. And so he points to a pair of brothers, twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And they would have known what he was meaning. I'll give you a bit of context. Jacob and Esau had a grandfather. His name was Abraham. He was the big dog. He was the one who literally God chose, pulled out of a pagan nation because he wasn't a good guy. He was a bad guy. He came from a bad family. 
He came from a bad situation. He came from a, a people who did not honor, did not follow, didn't even know about God. And he pulled him out and he said, I will choose you to build my nation. I will choose you to be the one that Israel actually will be born through. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has twin, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau do not get along. There is conflict from day one. It actually says in scripture that they, they were literally would fight in the womb. And this conflict was there. And the conflict, when you pull it back all the way to what, it, what was its cause, was the fact that one would be chosen by God and one would not. That one would be accepted by God and one would be rejected. And you might not understand all, the, all of it. I, want, I just want to help us get an idea of it. That actually through Jacob, who was chosen by God, who was accepted by God, we actually get the nation of Israel born. And through Esau, that one who was rejected, there is a nation called Edom that gets mentioned in our scripture. Edom that actually is born. And there is conflict between these two nations right throughout history. And it comes all the way back to God's choice. This is just a fun fact, but even in the time of Jesus, as he is born and he enters human history, there was a king on the throne in that time, in that area called King Herod, who was breathing murderous threats against the Hebrews, who actually went to, so far as because he was so scared of the Messiah coming that he actually ordered that every two-year-old boy, every boy two years and under should be killed in trying to kill Jesus himself. He was actually an Edomite. That actually Jesus came through the line of Jacob, he came through the line as an Israelite, and Herod came through the line of Edom. He came through the line of Esau. And so right throughout history, you have this conflict, and it all comes back to God's choice. It reminded me of another set of brothers who brought an offering to God, an offering of worship, Cain and Abel, in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, they bring a worship, a, a worship offering, and one gets accepted as genuine heartfelt worship and one gets rejected it's the same concept God's choice is all-powerful God's choice is is how it should go and what it will evoke in us is a worship response the question is is it going to be a worship response that's acceptable or one that is not God wants to remind his people hey you're the people I chose you're the people I love you're the people I bless he reminds them of their history he actually had chosen the nation of Israel for one reason, to be a witness to the world of his power, to be a witness of the world that, he, that there is a God in Israel. And I think as we think about it on this side of Jesus coming into human history, we realize that that same choice and that same model is placed on us. That actually we are now the ones who are witnesses of God's power and his presence in the world today. It was for Israel in the Old Testament. It's for us in the New Testament and beyond. He chose them. That was the first failure. The second failure I see is there was a failure in word and deed. So now it wasn't just a, a perception or a belief. In this previous series in Minefield, we spoke about the story we tell ourselves in our, in our head and then it actually always filters out into our action. So it wasn't just a problem of perception for Israel. It now had filtered down into what they were doing and what they were saying. God will answer our objections, he'll answer our accusations, and he'll do it in love. But even more importantly, God will even go a step further and he'll answer for our failures. He'll answer for our missteps. He'll answer for all of our sin and our iniquity. It says in verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? 
And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. What had begun in their mind was this belief that God doesn't love us. God has failed us. And now it seeped into the actions. And so they work out of this belief. And it begins to affect their worship and their relationship and connection to God. What it actually led them down was a road of apathetic worship. Because the accusation God has against them is actually you are offering me polluted offerings. What the people had begun to do was in their normal rhythm of worshiping God in offering sacrifices, they wouldn't offer their best. What they would do is say, okay, cool. Let's take the worst animal we've got and give that to God. Let's take the blind one, the old one, the one we maybe are gonna miss a bit. Let's give him that. And then we tick the box, our worship is done. Sacrifice finished. I want you to know that apathetic worship of God leads to one place, and that's destruction. And the question I have for us, and I think the challenge this text and this narrative is is posing to us, is how is our worship today? In the midst of uh, COVID, in the midst of 2021, in our hurt and our struggle, in everything that has led uh, us down a road where circumstance seems to be against us, where there is just a lack of clarity, what effect has it had on our worship? Has it actually led us down a road of apathy? Where actually we're quite comfortable, maybe not even realizing it, but knowing that the offerings we're bringing are not our best, that we're quite comfortable in bringing a weak offering, in bringing an inferior offering, that actually our worship has taken a hit, that this situation and circumstance and maybe what we've been telling ourselves in our head, maybe the belief or perception we have about God and the situation has now seeped out into our action and now it's led us down a road of apathetic worship. Maybe even in the midst of this online space, you've been struggling and you've pushed pause on your relationship and worship of God. Maybe in this moment you're saying, hey, it's just, it's just too difficult. I just don't enjoy it. It's just not great. Let me wait till it's normal again and then we'll get back in. I just wanna encourage you. God hasn't pushed pause on his relationship and his pursuit of you. And I don't think it serves us to ever do the same to him. I don't think it ever serves us to go down a road of apathy and that's, that's not to discredit any of the circumstance and the hardship we go through. But I think God is wanting to say, hey, where is it? Maybe diagnose in this moment, hey, where am I in my worship of God? You often will hear us and this, I, I wanna throw this out as a disclaimer so you hear me clearly. You'll often hear that we really do encourage and appreciate when we gather together like this when we do it live, when we connect, when we comment, when we share, we, because we understand how important that still is even in this time. But I want you to know that this is actually a heart issue. And so it's secondary in terms of, of you, are, are you watching me live right now or watching it later? It's secondary in terms of actually, are you, are you in every single week or maybe only one in six? That's secondary. What is actually primary is the question of where is our heart right now? Is our heart actually in a place of real, genuine, authentic worship of God? Is it actually in the place where God gets not just our weak or inferior or what can just get us by, but He actually gets our best? 
even in the midst of our hurt, even in the midst of our, uh, our lack of clarity, even in the midst of our understanding, even in our, our midst of our anger against God himself. Will we be ones who do that? It had seeped into the actions. It then also had seeped into their words. Carries on in, at the end of Malachi 2 in verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil in the, uh, is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? I believe Israel in this moment had fallen for one of the biggest traps, one of the greatest traps in following God. Because this perception had seeped in, and the trap they had fallen into was the trap of comparison. Because when you're in the midst of this, where actually you're starting to believe the lie, hey, God doesn't love me, God has failed me, and then it begins to play out in our circumstance, what we start to do as we look to the world is then compare. And we'll notice when there are those who are not following God, seem to be getting blessed. And it's, the, it's our normal human nature to go, God, why them and not me? Why must I struggle when I'm the one trying to do this? When I'm the one who, who is following you, I'm taking these steps, I'm, I'm trying to grow, I'm trying to, and yet look at them. How are they the ones that are getting blessed? How are they the ones that are not dealing with retrenchments? How are they the ones that are not dealing with financial issues? How are they the ones that are not dealing with the loss of loved ones? And yet they're not following you in the same way that I am. It's a massive trap but I want you to know that when it happens in the midst of uh, a failure in perception, a failure in reality, and a belief that God doesn't love us, it is always going to go down a dodgy road. Our desire so often can cloud our view. It can disrupt a clear mind. We want those things so bad. We, we, we're so in the hurt, so in the anger that we can't see a way out. And it sometimes can lead us down a road of faithlessness. That's what it did to Israel. And I don't think we're any different. But the faithlessness is always met by a faithful God. So I want to end with this, talk about God's faithfulness. God hears our objections. He sees our failure. He knows our questions and he actually will give answers. And his answer in the book of Malachi as we get into chapter three is he actually answers in fire. It says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jump down, it says, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Through all the pain, the hurt, the idolatry, the foolishness in his judgment of Israel in the book of Malachi, God introduces the concept, he introduces the person who is like a refiner's fire as being his ultimate answer, as actually being the answer that will fix all of this, that will correct all of this. I've got a couple of questions about the refiner's fire and this is where we're gonna end. The first one is, who is he talking about? Who is the refiner's fire? Through this passage, there's three people that get mentioned. It starts with, behold I, it's God speaking. This is God's ultimate answer to us. It then speaks about my messenger, the one who will prepare the way. And that references John the Baptist who comes just before Jesus as he prepares the way of the coming Messiah. In Luke 7, it actually says this. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before you, your face, 
who will prepare your way before you. It's speaking about John the Baptist. And then the third person who gets mentioned, who comes like a refiner's fire, is actually the Son of God. He's actually the Messiah. And the reason I say it is because he uses the title Lord. There is only one who got, got that title. He actually says he'll suddenly come to his temple. I don't know if you know this. The only one who can own the temple is God himself. The messenger of the covenant. The one who is Lord. The one who owns the temple. The one who is the son of God. The one who is with God. The one who is is God. The one who came into the world. The one who made himself known to us personally in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the refiner's fire. And so if you want to know the ultimate answer for our apathetic worship, for our following of wrong things, uh, for our, our, our failure, for our objections, for our accusations, the only answer is Jesus himself because he is the refiner's fire. Now, why does he have to come like a refiner's fire? The simple answer is that we need to be refined. A refining fire will do two things. It's going to purify and it's going to temper. It's going to purify because there's impurity in there and it needs to be removed. And actually when the impurity gets removed, it gets returned to its full value. And so as we were created with full value intrinsically by our creator God who made us in his image, we've been so marred by sin, so marred by our failure, so marred by our iniquity, so marred by us missing the mark, not being perfect, that actually the impurity has got, got in, sunk in deep. And it's no shock then that in our word, in our deed, in our perception, we go down a wrong road. But God's saying, I have a refining fire who can deal with that. I have a refining fire who can make that pure by taking the impurity out and leaving what is pure because it was made by God. It reminded me of Jesus' words in Matthew 5 where he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now you can look at different fires and different fires will have different effects. Different fires will have different purposes. And the, the effect and the purpose of the refiner's fire is very important. Because if you compare it to something like a wildfire, last year there was the big wildfires in Australia. We know when you get down to the Western Cape and it gets to fire season, there is almost in a wildfire only indiscriminate damage. That's the effect. Take a different look to a different context. You get to a hospital, they'll have an incinerator. It's got a very specific purpose to get rid of these things that cannot actually, that are dangerous. And so it will actually incinerate these objects to the point where they are fully, completely, and wholly destroyed. But a refining fire is very different because it has a purpose in that it will leave only that which is pure. And that's the refining fire that Jesus comes as. It's the refining fire that we actually need because God is in the business of refining our very own hearts. Because actually our hearts are need to be made pure, need to be made clean. That's why it says like fuller's soap. It actually is something that needs cleansing. It's never going to be the fire like the incinerator that consumes. That's why in verse 6 it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The fire he has for us when we are in a relationship with Jesus is one of refining, not one of consuming. And that leads to the third one, how if, if there is a refining fire, we can't miss that there is a consuming fire. And how do we experience the one and not the other? You're going to experience in your life one or the other. Scripture is very clear about that. It's why it carries on in, if you go to verse 5, it says, 
It speaks of the consuming fire and the final judgment. This is God's words. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. Ensuring we experience the refining of God and not the consuming fire of God means we need to understand it's not by our own strength, it's only by His strength. That actually it's not based on anything we do, any work we got, any, any way up that we could go. It is only by understanding that it is the mercy of God. Understanding that we are impure, understanding that we are the ones who fall short, we are the ones who get it wrong, and that on offer to us is His righteousness for our unrighteousness. That on offer is His holiness for our unholiness. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in the purifying mercy of God. Last thing I want to talk about is this. It's a concept I've called life in the furnace. Life in the refiner's fire. I mentioned it earlier, the fire does two things. It purifies, but it also tempers. If you don't know what tempering is, it actually is a process uh, that blacksmiths and metal workers will do where they improve the hardness and the elasticity and the overall strength of a metal by heating it and cooling it, reheating it and cooling it, reheating it and cooling it. And sometimes they can actually get it 16 times stronger than when it was in its original form. Tempering is such an important process in metalwork, but I really believe that tempering is an even more important process in the human heart. Because life is hard. Because the hurt is real. Because trying to deal with everything that the world has to throw at us means that we need a heart that has been tempered by the refiner's fire. And so as God shapes us, as He grows us, as He molds us, we actually find that the life in the furnace will grow our confidence in God. That actually circumstance, struggle, opposition, obstacles, these things outside of God cause damage. These things outside of God are a wildfire, but in God, they're the refiner's fire. That actually outside of God, they will be the things that destroy us, bring destruction, and we can't actually get ourselves up from them. But in God, they actually are the things He will use to care for us. God is first and foremost worried about your salvation, and second, your character. And even as I just personally reflected on this, I thought about the refinement that God has walked me through, through many years. I remember back to, I actually, so I turned 30 this year. In September, I will be 30. I think back to 20-year-old Duncan and people who know 20-year-old Duncan would have realized that he was, just, he was an intern who had uh, quite a few talents, but he was raw. He was rough around the edges. Uh, he was to put it nicely, a bit arrogant. To put it in reality, he was like super arrogant and actually was in need of God's refining. And there was one area that I think God really needed to refine deeply in this uh, matter. He needed to refine me specifically in understanding what it means to be patient, what it means to, be, to actually wait on Him. Because I was in that, that fire where the fire wasn't outside, the fire was inside. I was, I was ready. I was keen. Lord, let's go. Let's do everything you want me to do and do it right now. And God was saying, hey, you know, we've got a ways to go. This thing's a marathon. This thing's not a sprint. And so often you can get into that place and that wrong perception, wrong reality starts to kick in where you believe, hey, God's holding out on me. 
hey God, surely I just feel restricted. I feel frustrated. I feel like it's not right now. It's not, it's not the time, but it should be because I'm ready. And so often, time and time again through those years, I felt just as God's refining fire in different circumstances, in different experience, He said, hey, you know what? Wait on me. And I think about the moments, the big key moments, um, some big, some small, but key moments as I think back on it, where those big things happened and they happened in the perfect time. Where if they had happened even a second before, they wouldn't have gone down and brought me to this place. It probably would have derailed everything. It probably would have short-circuited everything. Actually, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't be standing where I am if God's timing hadn't come in the right way. And so often that's how we have to deal with the refining of God, realizing that actually it's fire. And sometimes fire burns. And so our experience isn't going to be one that is pain-free or uh, fully free and just comfortable. There'll be moments where we have to realize this thing is going to come at a cost. But it actually will grow in us an utter dependence on God. It will actually grow in us an utter, uh, a complete trust in His process, in His ways, in His character. Because He comes like a dad, puts His arm around us and He says, don't worry. We're going to get through this together. I know you're not there now, but I'm getting you there. I want you to know that God's desire in coming as a refinest fire was to ignite within us a fire of true worship, a fire that is unquenchable and unwavering. I want you to know that the most important product of a life in the furnace is a devotion to Jesus is a devotion every single day to His way, to His commands, to His love, to His care, to His peace. And I wonder to ask this question. If you're sitting here and going, Dunks, I've got no clue. I've never experienced that. I want you to know today that in Jesus, you can be made pure even when you're not. I want you to know that you can be made holy even though you're not. I want you to know you can be made clean even though you're not. I want you to know that you can be made strong even though you're not. I want you to know that you can be made righteous even though you're not. I really do believe that the question today for all of us is, are, we in, are, you, are you in Jesus? Are you in His refiner's fire? Are you in the fire that purifies and the fire that tempers? Because if it's all on you, it's not gonna work. If it's all on your perception, your reality, what you're thinking and your ways, your actions, your thoughts, your words, it's gonna go down a road of destruction. It's gonna go down a road where we're actually faithless, but we're met by His faithfulness. I'm just reminded of Jesus' words where He said, hey, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Why don't you stand with me? I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna sing this song, Refiner, again. Father God, I wanna thank you so much that you care so deeply for each human heart. You care so deeply that you actually want to thrust upon it your refinest fire. And it's not there to damage or to destroy, even though there may be some discomfort, but it is there to purify and to temper. And Lord, I pray for whatever we need right now, not what we think we need, not what we think we want, but actually what you believe we need right now. I pray that your refining fire would go out and do it now. 
that if we need to be purified, we would, that if we are needing to be tempered to deal with the world that we live in and the circumstance that we're facing, that we would, because you come like a fire. Lord, we can bring our accusations, our our, our questions, our objections. We can bring our hurt, our failing. We can bring our, our, our feelings of negativity. But at the end of the day, it all will be answered by fire in you. So Jesus, we lift you up. We turn our eyes to you. We turn our hearts over to you again and say, Lord, will you help us live life in the furnace? Jesus, would you refine us again? Would your fire be the reality of our heart? Would it bring out the impurity? Lord, would it bring out the full value of being ones created in your image? Ones created for relationship with you. Ones created to walk in your ways, to know your heart, to know your commands. Ways to be righteous, not by the world's standard, but by your standard. Jesus, we are weighed up against you and nothing else. And we fall short and only in you Only in your refining, only in your sacrifice, only in worship of you can we find ourselves pure, ourselves cleansed. And so we hand ourselves